I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm sorry about the unevenness of the floor. <laughs> That's what you say at closing time, isn't it? I'm so- yeah, this is right. Yeah, this is an old pig style. Well, we're all right. We've got a couple of old pigs in here. <laughs> I'm sorry, darling. I can't work on a floor like this. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Now Where Were We? Bob Cryer here. And that uneven floor we were hearing about was in a music room in an Oxfordshire back garden. Full marks, if you guess that. Which is where we chose to record this first conversation for the podcast series. The music room in question belonged to the gorgeous country home of singer, actor, entertainer and ukulele evangelist Joe Brown. In many ways, Joe was the perfect guest to begin this anecdote odyssey. After all, Joe is to the music industry what Dad was to comedy, at least as raconteurs. There aren't too many people who can begin a story with when the Beatles opened for me. However, although the Beatles do feature, in particular Joe's long-term friendship with George Harrison, we began by discussing Joe's smoking habits. When I used to go to this bloke in Arley Street, the only reason I went to Arley Street is because I was doing quite a lot of filming, and in those days, that you know, they had to have you insured if the if the one of their bloody stars in a film was went snuffed it, then they were insured. So they always send us all down to Arley Street. So we go down there, and I got to know this guy, a really nice doctor, and I'll go there every year for. 20, 30 years, and he he used to always say to me, how many are you smoking? And I'd always lie and say 20, and I got it right down, and I said, well, I'm only smoking one a day now. He said, are you really? I said, yeah, and what I've done, I've got a whole packet of old Alban, and I've stuck all the skins together and rolled it up like that in a big fag. It was about two inches across and a foot long. And I just, I, I, said, I said, I'm only smoking one and I got it out of my pocket. I went, have you got a light? <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, Baz, we're on air. Oh, uh, the excitement builds. My wife and I were in Morrison's once and an older couple, listen who's saying older, uh, walked past and she was almost skipping. And she said to her husband, only two more items, quite small, and as he walked past me, he said, the excitement builds. <laughs> what a line. I told, I told Alan Bennett, pick the names up as they thought. I told Alan Bennett and he just went, oh, the excitement builds. Oh, he, he loved it. <laughs> There's something I wanted to ask you, Barry. Yes. And that is how comes on all of my birthdays I get a phone call from you. Yes. And you say to me, I've got your birthday present here. And I say, what's that? And you say a joke. Now, how do you know it's my birthday? Because it's nowhere near yours, is it? No, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's in the Guardian, in the Guardian birthdays column, which I consult every day, and you're in there, Joe. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was the Daily Worker or something. <laughs> you know, but I remember that the time, no, well, let me just think, the last one, was the old lady on the train. With the Bible? Yes. 
And the one before that was the parrot joke. When you phoned me up and said, I've got a joke for you for your birthday. And I said, uh, well, what is, you said, it's a parrot joke. Now, I know you've heard them all. You said the parrot jokes, but this is a good one. Now, do you want to tell it or shall I? Which one is it? I love oh, these, it's the one. this one. No, is I'd like one, to yeah. hear you tell it, Joe. <laughs> it's the one where this woman's looking in the pet shop window and she sees this parrot and she thinks to herself, oh, she thinks, I've always wanted one of those. That's an odd, one of the rarest parrots and I know because I've studied parrots. i just got to go and have a word with it. So she goes in there, she's talking to the parrot and the old parrot's sitting there. And the bloke behind the counter said, you interested in that parrot? Then she says, oh, yes, she said, very much so. She said, but I couldn't possibly afford it. He says, yeah, he says, it's quite cheap, that parrot. She says, well, how much? He says, 20 quid. She says, 20 quid? 20 quid for an African grey? Why is it so cheap? He says, well, he says, it's had a bit of a strange old upbringing, that parrot. It's been brought up in a brothel. And his language can be, oh, she says, don't you worry about that. I'm very broad-minded. 20 I'll take him. So she took him home and put him in the sitting room and took the cover off and the old parrot looks around like that and he goes, oh, new place, new place. Very nice, very nice. <laughs> and then her two daughters walk in from the kitchen. Oh, he says, new girls, new girls, very nice. And then her husband comes out in the kitchen and the parrot says, hello, Keith. <laughs> and it's got to be Keith. And yeah. that's what you told me, yeah. it has to be Keith. We heard a man in my pub telling it and the parrot said, hello, Brian. And we uh, said, no, no amateur. No, no. Okay, it's Joe's fault. <laughs> this guy's parrot's swearing a lot. And he said to the parrot, will you just shut your... And he said to a mate, I can't stop him swearing. And his mate said, stick him in the fridge for five minutes. You might get the message... So he gets hold of the parrot and said, you're going to stop swearing. And the parrot said, why don't you? And he got it, put it in the fridge, closed the door, five minutes, took it out. You're going to stop swearing. The parrot said, all right. And the parrot looked back in the fridge and said, what did that chicken do? (laughs) (laughs) End of joke, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Well, what surprises me about comedy is that all the great ones, if you think about it, like going way back like Max Miller and, and uh, Jimmy James and that. Oh, lot, you know, yes. Well, they, they, did their, they did their act everywhere, the same act. They never moved it or changed it. It was all over the country. Of course, when television and radio come in, these guys was a bit lost for it all, you know. But there was a lovely story about Jimmy James and... Eddie Gray, Monsieur Eddie Gray, and they were both working in this theatre and um, Eddie Gray had gone to the theatre first and Jimmy James turned up at the digs and he says, have you any other professionals staying here? She <laughs> said, yes, we, we have one, one professional staying here. He's uh, French. French? Who's that then? She said, a Monsieur Eddie Gray. <laughs> he said... French? He's not French. He's a German bastard, he said. He said, even he was in a double act. He said, 
He was a star of Himmler's Follies. <laughs> I'm not staying here with him. And the woman said, oh, please, Mr. James, because he was a big star. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm so sorry. I didn't realise. I'll feed him in the kitchen. You can have the dining room to yourself and I'll put you up the other end of the – just just keep that German bastard away from me. <laughs> so he goes to the theatre and he tells Eddie. So Eddie hadn't been to the digs yet. So he goes to the digs, knocks on the door. Woman opens the door and he goes, Oi, Littler. <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently, the whole week, Jimmy's running around saying, Where's that German? And he's going around doing the Hitler salute. Yeah. And eventually, she went out on a Friday night to play bingo when it, the bus was late. Or she, she went back home and found a pair of them playing cards in the kitchen. <laughs> so she chucked them both out. <laughs> Jimmy James, uh, there was the onset of. Singers Joe topping the bill in the musical and variety. And, you know, Jimmy had been used to it with Roy Castle, who worked with him, and Eli, who oh, was yeah, Eli. Eli. And uh, Jimmy was resenting the fact that uh, he would now be second top or even third or something with a singer with their hits, you know. And Slim Whitman, I think it was. Yeah. And he arrived and they did the band call, the rehearsal, and Jimmy was really resenting this, that this. American, who's he? Never heard of him. Was top of the bill, and he wasn't. So uh, Roy Castle told me this, and uh, he said on the first night, twice nightly variety, uh, Slim Whitman's in his dressing room, obviously, and uh, he said we went on, but uh, Jimmy speeded the act up. He said it was practically half its length. He was doing it at such speed, me and Eli responding and everything. And we finished the act and went off the stage down the corridor and Slim Whitman's dressing room door flew open. He was listening to it in the speaker in his dressing room. He's standing there in his wife fronts or something and he said to Jimmy James, what's going on? He said, you are. <laughs> and the band, had, the band had to play to fill in. Oh, Jimmy James. What was the story you used to tell about the landlady who, uh, when he got back, uh, the act got, the turn got back uh, late at night? That was Tommy Trinder, It was think. Tommy Trinder. He'd been given keys for the back door of the digs so he could come in quietly and discreetly later if he was... And uh, he opened the back door and he was making his way through the darkened kitchen. <laughs> landlady, another... another uh, Professional there, were having it off on the kitchen table. And she looked at him and said, oh, Mr. Trindo, you must think I'm a terrible flirt. <laughs> <laughs> True story. True story. A great story. We were talking earlier about the crossovers between comedy and music. And well, that- you know, the funny thing is that uh, it used to shock me because it must have been so hard for some of these old professionals to suddenly get lumbered with some young pop star who's knocking. Because the first time it happened to me, I was at Stockton and um, I was playing um, Wishy Washy in in Aladdin. Aladdin, yes. So I get to the theatre, the Globe, and I look up at the billing and it's six-foot letters, Joe Brown, and then underneath in the little letters... Also, George Bolton, who's the dame, right? All right. So now, I didn't know who George Bolton was, but I knew he'd done, because I'd been told before this man had done 42 pantomimes. And I was really, really upset about this. And I I didn't know what to do. I went in, the first thing I did, 
I went and found him, knocked on the dressing room door and went in and said, Mr. Bolton, uh, I introduced myself. I know who you are, I said. I said, now look, I said, I'm very embarrassed about this billing. I said, I realise how hard you work through all these years and, and I, it's my first pantomime and all I want to do is learn. Well, from that day on, George and I became so good friends. Yeah. And I did loads of pantomimes with George after that. But what made me laugh was that with this Joe Brown outside in Aladdin, they spelt it wrong. <laughs> so instead of having one L and two Ds, they had two Ls two and S. one D. So it spelt all a din. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And, and, and dear old Georgie, I, I started getting embarrassing come to the end of the run because I thought, uh, well, the first thing I, I noticed, I went in his dressing room and there was crates of Guinness and and all sorts of stuff, crisps and everything. And I said, what's all this, Mr. Bolton? Uh, perks, my boy, just perks. <laughs> I said, well, he said, oh, he said, you mentioned mention them on the stage. He said, and uh, doesn't get a laugh. He said, but the dressing room's full of it. <laughs> he said, uh, matter of fact, he said, uh, they gave me a bike last year. He said, I'm too bloody old to ride it, you know. <laughs> and he, he, he was real old pro. And I said to him, I'm really worried. He said, what, what are you worried about? I said to him, well, being the star of the show, I mean, I suppose I've got to tip everybody and I don't know what to tip them. I don't want to spoil it for anybody and I don't want to, you know, oh, don't worry. My boy said, you should do what I shall do. And I said, what's that? He said, I shall give the band leader my kind regards <laughs> and on my way out I shall show the doorman a shelling. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely old guy. Arthur Askey. Another great name from there. He was a one-off. These people are one-offs. And he played Dame without a trace of makeup, just with a wig and everything. He said, the kids know it's a silly man, you know. And they said he was born on, uh, carried on uh, one of his pantomimes, making his first entrance in the pantomime. And he descended from this thing, looked at the audience, said, where's my son Aladdin? Oh, wrong bloody pantomime. <laughs> that was his opening line. Well, the- someone told me about Arthur. I went, I went in some theatre once and uh, Arthur was doing something. I did work with Arthur a couple of times, but I wasn't working with him then, but he was uh, he was on stage doing some rehearsal or something. And I noticed that he kept diving around on the stage, didn't make a beeline for anything. I said to the stage manager, what's the matter with Arthur? He said, uh, he's got trap fever. I said, what do you mean trap fever? He said, he's walking around a trap. He said, he went through one last week, he said, and the poor bugger won't go near him now. (laughs) Oh, he had terrible trouble later on. This is really sad, but I promise you it gets a bit jollier later. But he had gangrene and varicose veins and terrible, and he had a leg amputated, and he was in St. Thomas's Hospital. I'd heard about this, so I went to see him. And... uh, he was lying in the bed and uh, he was sort of laughing. He said, oh, I've got to show you this. He had a telegram in those days from a friend who'd heard about the leg and said, I booked you a tour of Treasure Island. Oh, no. <laughs> One leg. Then the, it got really worse and I heard the other leg. He lost the other leg. And I went to see him again in hospital and he's laughing again. I said, what? He said, you remember that telegram last time? I said, yes. He said, I've had another one. And it said, calm down, you've got the job. <laughs> a man who could joke about losing both legs. These wow. people, you know. That's amazing. When did you first work with him? 
Oh, I'm no good on chronology. No. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, boy. Oh, that's another podcast, isn't oh, it? I can <laughs> never remember when's what, you know. But I remember all sorts of funny things. I remember dear old Jimmy Wheeler, who was a lovely oh, yes. guy. We, we got on so well. And one day when I was in Charlie Girl with, with Dame Anna, you know. Yeah. So the show's on and I'm in a bit, when I'm not on the stage and the phone rang and and the stage door says, uh, hello, is that you, Mr. Brown? And I thought, what's he talking about, Mr. Brown? He calls me Joe, you know. So I said, yeah, Fred, what's the matter? Oh, he said, there's a gentleman here wants to see you. Oh, wants to see you, Mr. Brown. So I said, who is it? He said, it's a Mr. Jimmy Wheeler. I said, can he hear me? He said, no, Mr. Brown. I said, is he pissed? He said, yes, Mr. Brown. <laughs> I said, well, send him down to my dressing room. I said, no, don't do that. I said, bring him down to my dressing room. So he brought Jimmy in and poor old Jimmy was, he was almost in tears. And I said, what's the matter? Jimmy said, uh, why, so I just come from the hospital. I said, yeah, he said, my wife. I said, what's the matter? She's got cancer, he says. I said, I'm so sorry. Uh, he said, uh, have you got anything to drink? I said, well, not really. I don't drink when I'm working. I said, there's some Guinness. We got Guinness because the same thing. I said, you don't get a laugh on the dressing room. <laughs> so, so he says, yeah, and I had to go back on. And when I come back, he downed about three bottles of this Guinness. And at the end of the evening, he was paralytic. I don't know what he'd had before he came to see me. Yeah. So he said, I said, well, I better see you out. So I took him out, out of my dressing room into the corridor and they had this red lino all the way down the corridor, the corridor with these little pock marks, stiletto heel pock marks all the way down. So we come staggering out my door and we, we go along the corridor and then just about we go up the stairs and Anna Neagle's room is here. So I thought, i just got to get him past Anna's room and get him up the stairs, then we can go across the road, the rules, and have another drink, see? So he puts one step on the stair and then he leans back and he leans against Anna's door. And he looks down on the floor, he says, in a big, loud voice, he says, uh, look at that, will you? I said, what? He said, look at all them stiletto heel marks. <laughs> I said, yeah. He says, I've had jelly deals. He said, but I've never had fucking stiletto heels. <laughs> at which time, Anna, of course, that opened the door. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I had to push him up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> I was bottom of the bill. I think it was my very early days. Well, I was never top of the bill, but I was Sheffield Empire and the great Wheeler was on and we did the bank call. He said, come on, son. And he took me to the pub across the road. I thought, oh, this is Jimmy Wheeler. There's going to be some drinking. And he got himself a half and bought me a pint of bitter or whatever. I thought a half. But once he'd had the half... He was tuning in. And uh, that night, the first house on the Monday night, he started his act and uh, suddenly stopped his act and delivered a tribute to our brave boys in Cyprus, <laughs> an emotional speech about our soldiers in Cyprus. And the musical directors looking at us in the weeds going, what, where are we now? <laughs> These people are one-offs. They're amazing. Oh, Jimmy he, Wheeler. Was, he made me laugh when, when we was doing the Walk the Rats thing. And... Uh, we were all lined up on the stage and John Mills, the actor, they brought him on. I think uh, Princess Di was there. And they, as they come past with a, with a chair, you know, 
He, he looked at me and says, look at that. I said, what? He said, Mills on Wheels. <laughs> 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 they told me about a pantomime on the matinee had a quite a large party of boys from a public school in, and the pantomime did the ghost scene, you know, and the buttons or whoever in the pantomime, yeah. but behind him, one of the cows with a white sheet on, and uh, where is he? Where is he? Till it's behind you, and he turned round and. It had gone on the second time. Where, where? It's behind you, turn around, gone. And the third time, he said, where is it? And the voice of one of the boys in the audience said, oh, don't bother, Vernon, the man's obviously an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these stories, Well, that's, um, you know, John Gielgud's great advice, isn't it, to, uh, to young actors on stage, never pause. Oh, Do you yes. remember that one? Saying, well, why oh, should I Oh, yeah, know? well, George used to say that to me in the pantomime. We'd, <laughs> we'd have to do these uh, front class while they did the scenery behind the tabs, you know. So uh, just stuff like I'd come up running, running up and saying, Mum, Mum, there's a, there's a man outside with a funny face. And then she'd say, well, tell him you got one. And, and the other one was, but he wants a shilling for a bed. Well, tell him if it's any good, we'll give him half a crown for it. And all these gag, gag, gag. Yes, Meanwhile, yeah. behind us going, boom, 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 The ritual jokes. So then he'd say, uh, come along, Wishy. And as we went off, he'd say, Huff goes a brush down, comes a six nine and a bob, all jelly takes her wrinkles out, your auntie Nelly, what can't speak, can't lie. <laughs> and we get to the side of the stage, I said, what, what's all that about? He said, Sonny says, keep talking, they think they're getting their money's worth. <laughs> oh. Well, John Gilgood said, you know, never pause to young actor. No. Says, I, did, I did once on stage and I heard someone in the front row go, you beast, you've come over my umbrella. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Les Dawson, bless him, who did a good long apprenticeship, he said he was sweating his way up through and he's working in the back room of a pub. And he said, I did one joke or whatever, nothing. And I heard a voice at the back of the room say, used to be a pool table in here. <laughs> <laughs> or um, not, not, yes. not the same at the Glasgow Empire, though. No, you, you got oh, you, you, that one. You've played, you've you played the about, Glasgow what Empire. What about yeah. what's the name? You won't be able to use this, but you might be able to. It's uh, when Pavarotti was on uh, the Glasgow Empire and uh, he'd finished one aria and uh, he stepped forward to announce the next piece. And as he stepped forward, a voice from the audience says, Sing my one and only love. <laughs> and he said, I'm awfully sorry, but that is not in the programme. And the bloke said, well, show us your cock then. <laughs> <laughs> Mike and Bernie Winters. Mike going on. Oh, and- fuck me, there's not another one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Des O'Connor <laughs> pretended to faint and collapsed yeah. on the stage and... Uh, Eric Morgan said he sold advertising space on the soles of his shoes. <laughs> and the manager said, you do that again, you get the sack. So Des had to sweat through a week at the, the graveyard for English comedians. Billy Dainty told me, well, I was a comedian those days, he said, I played Glasgow with a show called Here Come the English. He said, talk about <laughs> signing your death warrant. <laughs> and yet Americans... Oh, Danny Kaye triumphed in Scotland and comedy was very regional in those days. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I think it had to be, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. Really? And the two men I first wrote for, really, on television were Jimmy Logan and Stanley Baxter. So Jimmy called me Honorary Scott. But they didn't come south much. Welsh comedians, 
It's all changed now, which is good. It's crazy. I mean, in those days, you couldn't have a Cockney accent, could you? No. You know, Michael Caine got away with murder. Yeah. Max Max Miller made it to Leeds Empire Theatre years ago, and my dad died when I was five, and my brother was away in the Merchant Navy, so it was me and my mother. And I've marvelled at it then. My mother took me to see Max Miller, this man of double entendre and suggestive, and I was fascinated to sit, and she was twinkling away all the way through his act. And Max Miller said to me, I am at the women's son. Then he got the men. Go for the women. All right, darling, no, straight in. And I've never forgotten my mother. That was her, ooh, good to see the naughty Max Miller tonight. Oh, fascinating. Well, this is uh, a woman who, whose son was appearing at the windmill. Yes. You. Oh, oh yes, um, I see what you mean. <laughs> So maybe it's chronology and genealogy as well. <laughs> yeah, I went to conquer London with a 17-day rail return ticket. I'm not making this up. Mentored and supported by David Nixon. I'd been his assistant, in a, not on stage, in a pantomime. And David was marvellous to me. And uh, it wasn't working. I, I thought, I'm going back to Leeds, tail between my legs. But the day before the ticket was going to run out, I got an audition at the windmill. And, uh, oh, I thought, oh, boy. And that was six shows a day, six days a week. So I went on to do my audition, 12 minutes, I think, jokes and a song. And uh, then from the dark, this voice said, uh, you know any more jokes? It was a great Vivian Van Damme, the boss, VD, as he was known. (laughs) And I, I told him, you know another song? I said, yeah, but I haven't got any music. Ronnie will busk for you. This was Ronnie Bridges, who worked there, became a friend. So I sang another song. Thank you. I thought, oh, it's over. And another man who became a friend, John Law, came on the stage and said, dressing room 12A. I said, what? He said, you've got the job. That was 10.30 in the morning. I was on the stage at 20 past 12, midday, doing my 12 minutes. And the old man had me in his office between every show, between the fish tank and the desk, changed my act. You tell that too early, that's a good one. Tell that there. Oh, here's one you could do. And I rang my dear mother. I said, I'm a windmill comedian. She got no Same idea what church. I was talking about. And it's been downhill ever since. It's been <laughs> downhill. You- too early. Yeah. <laughs> cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you hear these stories about pros, because we're professionals, other people are not like us. Like these working men's clubs. Now, you've all heard stories about these working men's clubs. 
And I don't think there's nothing wrong with a working man. It's the people that run it. I mean, a lot yes. of them have got this terrible attitude, you know. And poor old Norman Collier, who was a great friend oh, of mine. Oh, yes. Norman said he turns up to do this club somewhere and he's doing 10-minute spots between the strippers. And it, it, it's a Sunday. So he gets there and uh, in the afternoon and says to the bloke, uh, is there anything to eat and stuff? No, no, no. He said, well, round here on a Sunday, you'll be lucky. He said, well, honey, I've come up from London. He said, no, I've nothing to eat. And the bloke said, uh, well, I don't know. He said, uh, I suppose you better come home with me. So apparently he took Norman back with him and he put him in the front room. And Norman said, like, I was sitting there looking at all these pictures of around the walls like that, that Polynesian bird, the blue one, you know, <laughs> hanging over the fireplace. He said he could hear them <laughs> arguing, his wife, what you bring him in here with you for? Well, he can't get enough to eat. Did he not bring any sandwiches? No, 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 we'll have to give it anyway. Normally I'm sitting there listening to all this terrible. He said, about after 10 minutes, he said, uh, the door opened and these two little ginger-ready kids poked their red around the door and said, have you been on the telly, mister? And Norman said, well, well yes, I have, I. And the fella said, uh, the kid said, why are you eating our dinner then? <laughs> oh, so Tom <laughs> freaked out. So he'd been sitting there and he can hear the matches on. Right. And the club chairman is in the other room watching the match on the telly and leaving Norman all on his own in the room. And Norman said, I didn't know what to do. He said, eventually the guy come round and Norman said, do you, uh, I, do you mind if I use the toilet? The guy said, oh, it's at the bottom of the yard. He said, come on. So he took Norman out and into the old carsey at the back. Norman said, uh, I was sitting there, he said, and there was a gap under the door and a gap at the top of the door. He said, I'm sitting in there. He said, all of a sudden, this pair of slippers appears under the door with bunny rabbits on them. He said, all of a sudden, they disappeared, completely disappeared. But when I looked up, there's a pair of hands hanging on the top. And this woman's face appeared over the top while he was sitting there and said, do you like Yorkshire pudding, Norman? Thomas <laughs> <laughs> so said, I had to get out of there. Uh, but this is what happens. Yeah. Norman, uh, towards the end, bless him, he was uh, in bed and a journalist told me this who'd become a friend. And uh, he went to interview Norman, who was pretty terminally ill at the time. And he said Norman was in quite a good form. And then he said... Norman suddenly had an attack of <coughs> choking. And he said, oh, boy. And he got the chamber pot and gave it to Norman, who then dipped his hand into the chamber pot, removed his hand and said, and the winner of the raffle is... <laughs> he said even then he had to do the joke with the... You know, he, he used to do fun. a joke about the mic wasn't working, didn't he, Joe, and everything. <gasps> yes. Well, it was great, but... I'm winding up the car window. Somebody told me that Norman was the nicest man you'd ever wish yes. to meet, except when he was in a casino gambling. Oh, right. <laughs> Apparently, he had this thing about gambling. I never knew this, and they said he was a bloody menace. <laughs> You couldn't say hello. You go, what do you mean? No, <laughs> that's it, different, isn't it? 
But there's, the people in this prison, the Barry and I both know these wonderful guys where it all comes from, you know. Yeah. They were one-offs as well. You could never say somebody's a sort of Tommy Cooper. There was only one. You know, that man was a brilliant magician, member of the Inner Magic Circle. And, you know, he, he did silly. The great Humphrey Littleton said, never lose touch with silly. Eric and Ernie, two grown men, being silly. Tommy Cooper, brilliant magician, being silly. But suddenly, the table in front of him was full of bottled glass, bottled glass, bottled glass. And the audience couldn't believe what was happening, what he'd done. He apparently got an ovation for doing the trick right. He was a brilliant... Yeah, but- well, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, that he had, he had to learn how to do those tricks properly, a bit like Les Dawson well, yeah. and the piano. In order to play badly, Les had to be a good and The pianist. other thing about him, uh, Tommy was that uh, I didn't realise how serious he was about I his script. I mean, you see that hat routine and then you see him do it again somewhere else and there's not even a... Nothing's changed. Yeah. Not even the slight of the head. He used to note down where to turn his head and everything. So when, right. so when you wrote for him, you had to be that prescriptive. That's right. And I stood on the side before he was going to go on with him more than once. And he was almost trembling, looking. Is everything in the right place on the table? Yeah. And I walked across the deserted studio one day and uh, there was a, a piece of paper on the table, bottle bottom right-hand corner, glass centre of table. The detail that man went into to make it look chaotic. Well, you know, I saw him do this gig in this Northern club. I could not believe it. I was working up there, but I saw he was on. It was only a small club. And I went in to see him. Oh, hello, Joe. I said, hello, Tom. I said, what's happening? He said, look, he said, I'm, I'm going to leave my props. You sitting here? I said, yeah, I'm sitting here. The stage was there. I'll leave my props down and keep your eye on them, will you? I said, sure. So I'm sitting there having a drink and uh, he come on to do his show. And it was a glass stage with lights underneath it. Now, one of Tommy's gags was he had these three bowling balls, really heavy bowling balls, except one of them was made of rubber. <laughs> so he juggled with his balls and he chucked the rubber one up and then as it come down, it hits him on the head and as it hits him on the head, he cracked the other two together. Yes. So he's doing this bit and he chucks up the rubber ball, except when he gets older, he realises... He's got the rubber ball. <laughs> he's got the rubber ball here and he's coming down. So all he did was put his head back like that and the bloody thing went straight through the glass stage. <laughs> all over. I couldn't believe it because um, everybody thought it was part of the act. Yes. You know? We rehearsed in a church hall at Hammersmith years ago and suddenly it was choreography and dancers and this, that and the other. And uh, the director said, Tom, you're free now, you can go. And I'll never know why. Uh, he said, come on, to me. And we went the underpass to uh, the Britannia pub opposite, uh, which in those days, pubs closed at 3 o'clock and opened up again about That's 6 right, yeah. or whatever. It had just opened up, very quiet, and I walk in with Tommy Cooper. There's three or four people in there. <gasps> Tommy Cooper, Tommy Cooper. And uh, contrary to his image, he bought me a drink. <laughs> Because there was only me there. And uh, then a man walked in and looked at Tommy and said, Tommy, can I tell you a joke? He said, don't you know? Which I thought was quite good. So he said, go on. 
So the man said, these two men go into a pub, and Tom said, excuse me. And he said to the uh, barman, have you got a bit of paper? Yeah, Tom, here. Right, go on, son, what? Uh, these two men go into a pub. Excuse me, have you got a pen? So this man's now colouring up, and people are walking in and seeing Tom and this man telling a joke. Yeah, go on. They, they, these two men go into a pub. Is the name of this pub important in the joke? No, any old pub. Excuse me. Any old pubs. <laughs> now, this is just becoming chaotic. And then one of our cameramen walked in, and Tommy said, Harry, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this joke. He said to me, would you mind starting again? <laughs> oh, he was sadistic. He was, yeah. There was a horseshoe bar in a pub once, and Tommy was on one side of the horseshoe, and the man across the horseshoe bar, same thing, said, can I tell you a joke, Tom? He said, yeah, go on. And Tommy dropped his trousers. So everybody at this side could see him standing with his trousers around his ankles and started laughing. And the man on the other side of the bar thought, this joke has never gone so well in my life. <laughs> he had a sadistic streak, Tom, playing with people like that. He's clever, though. I mean, I was oh, doing brilliant. a series at the same time that he was for, for uh, I think it was T Thames Television, and he was doing his series there. So both of us were doing our own shows. I can't remember where. It might have been in Manchester. Anyway, so I noticed that when I went in the bar, all these other people in the bar, and Tommy would walk in the door and look around like that, and everybody would go like that. Because he, he took one look. If anybody caught his eye, he'd come straight over. Yes. And you'd have to say, would you like a drink, Tom? And he had this clever thing. He used to say, I'll have a small, I'll have a brandy. Let <laughs> <laughs> him buy you a drink. Give him a thrill. Teddington, the Thames Television Studios. I popped in the pub next to the studios and met three people who were chatting, and I said, what, what? They said, oh, we're, we're meeting Tommy here, but he hasn't turned up. So I chatted with him, and Tommy walked, I'm not making this up, Tommy walked in the pub wearing a dressing gown and pyjamas and said, sorry about that, I overslept. He'd gone to wardrobe at Thames Television and said, pyjamas and a dressing gown, right, just to make that entrance in the pub. And the horrible night, Joe, you know, I clicked on to ITV. I oh. thought, oh, Tommy's on, live from Her Majesty's. And uh, he was. we knew about the drinking and his health, bless him, but he was funny that night. And uh, then this woman brought this big robe on for him, and he was going to produce amazing things from this robe, people passing a ladder, you know, from behind the curtains to produce this ladder from the robe. And he sank to his knees. Yeah, this is live that. television. And I thought... I didn't know how bad things were, but I thought, no, Tommy with his legs and everything, that doesn't feel right. And then he rolled over backwards and the director went, yeah, and the band cut in and they went to a commercial break. And the audience is laughing still. Yes, yeah, still oh, laughing, yeah, oh, thought, yeah, what's yeah, that yeah. about? And then Jimmy Tarbuck was comparing. He came on and he said, oh, Tom's fine, Tom's fine, ha, 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 and introduced Les Dennis and Dustin G, a double act at the time. And Les said to me, we could almost see Tom's feet popping out from behind. They had to try and do the rat and concentrate. And that night my phone rang and, uh, sorry to bother you, uh, yeah, I said, this is about Tommy Cooper, isn't it? And the man said, yes, yes, it is. He said, have you got Eric Morecambe's phone number? And I lied instinctively. I said, oh, sorry, can't help you there. 
said, all right, sorry to bother you, and he rang off. And I rang Eric. He said, oh, God, were you watching? I said, yes. And the things he said that night, Eric, to me, he said, Tommy, in front of the audience, bless his heart, I'd never do that. And I found myself doing a joke in this moment. I said, can we have that in writing, sir? And we had a little laugh. And he said, oh, dear Tom, though, you know, there we are. And uh, a few weeks later at Tewkesbury, without Ernie, on his own, he was with um, Stan Stennett, the comedian, doing an audience with. And he was on top form, Eric, messing around with the drum kit and the piano and fooling around, taking questions from the audience. Walked off the stage and fell all the way down the stairs. And he did get off the stage. Just. Yes, yeah. it's ironic, bless him. Yeah. What a way to go, though, eh? <laughs> I mean, if you're a great star like that, you know, I mean, I think yeah, I'd like to go like that, I think. Perform yeah. right up to the Not end. Not that I'm a great star, but I wouldn't mind falling down a set of stairs if it gets a bit publicity. <laughs> Max Wall, Sims is on the Strand restaurant. Uh, the great Max Wall, and it was, you know, he'd had the long career and everything. And my friend Michael Poynton, who writes and everything through the years, he'd had lunch with Max, and they walked down the stairs from the restaurant. And Max was walking behind Michael and fell past him all the way down the rest of the stairs and died in Michael's arms there. Bloody hell. Oh, boy, you know, what a way to go, the great Max Wall. Oh, boy. We must cheer up. This parrot. (laughs) And cheer up we did. Several times, in fact. So much so that you won't be surprised to learn that this conversation turned into a two-parter. It would have been three, but we worried that the sound of bins being emptied, milk bottles being collected and cockerels crowing might have spoiled the recording. Part two is available in a day's time. Until then, as Dad used to say, and this time it's actually true, same time tomorrow. Mm-hmm.